0: introduction. For those of you who don't know Asher, I think most of us have probably been acquainted with him, but, but we might know him as preacher, but tonight we're going to hear from him primarily, I think, as psychologist. He completed his Bachelor of Psychology in 2005 at Newcastle Uni and his Master of Psychology in 2007 at the University of Western Sydney. His studies involved completing research projects in the areas of impulse control and male body image disorders. Asher has worked with children and adolescents in a number of settings, primarily in private practice and schools in the Hunter region and Central Coast. He has extensive experience assessing and treating a broad range of psychological disorders in children, range from toddlerhood to young adulthood. Asher and his wife Sky live locally in the Hunter where they are busy raising four children of their own. So we're about to hear from him, but I want to uh, point your attention as well to Slido. So if you haven't been to Grapple before, what we do is, whilst you think of questions, because tonight's going to finish with a Q&A, you can write your questions uh, in, just go to slide.do on your phone, type in the hashtag GYA Grapple and put your questions in. And you can also read the other questions which people have put in and vote for the best ones. So that the most popular questions go to the top, because often we don't get through all of the questions, but we at least get through the the most popular ones. So it's it's nice and, and democratic. So let's give a warm grapple welcome to Asher Morrison.
1: Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me here tonight. I thought I'd better wear my business clothes and glasses so that you take me seriously and um, look somewhat educated. Tonight is a big topic. It's big in scope in that we won't cover everything. Um, And a lot of what you're going to hear tonight is probably... some opinions around the um, connection between mental health and spirituality and the Bible, Um, but we won't be able to cover everything. So I really hope that this stimulates some good conversations for you to have in your Connect groups, with your Connect pastor, with your mentors, with each other. The other thing I want to acknowledge too is that we know from um, statistics that here in Australia around 45% of the population will experience a diagnosable mental health disorder uh, sometime in their life. And we also know that the younger generations, so young adulthood, late adolescence, are the most proportionally represented there too. So um, so I know there's a lot of you who are young here and also young at heart, and these things uh, can be more prominent. And so I just want to say all that just to acknowledge that when I'm talking tonight, I don't know um, everyone's situation and some of this may hit a bit of a nerve and be a little bit um, uncomfortable at times and I just want to acknowledge that. And my prayer is that as I share and as we have our discussions tonight, is that if you get anything from tonight, it's that you get some hope because God understands and has a plan for your suffering and He will not leave you in it alone. And I would just love tonight for if anyone is feeling discouraged or affected by mental health to leave just with a bit of hope in the good God who loves you and wants to walk you through it. So um, Theo mentioned just briefly that there has been an interesting dance between um, our culture and our society and psychology and mental health. Initially, it was one of probably... of trepidation there. And particularly when we look at some of the early um, conclusions of some of the founders of psychology, like Sigmund Freud, you can kind of see why there was a little bit of space there, because we don't all think like that, mate. And you know, you just stay over there with your ideas. But as as things have moved on, um, and psychological research has become more robust, uh, there's been now this great embrace of psychology. And to the point where if you want to say anything nowadays with authority, you wheel out a psychologist. So if you want to back up any idea, you just say, Psychologists say, cats are good for your mental health. Psychologists say, if you turn your phone off at 7pm, you'll wake up with amazing abs. Psychologists say, a bird in the hands worth two in the bush and blah, blah, blah. And psychologists become a bit like Confucius at times. And what I want to look at is while we do this warm embrace of psychology, which is nice, we appreciate it. And I appreciate getting wheeled out, but we want to look at whether the ideas of psychology and regarding mental health actually match up with what's in the Bible. As a general answer, what I would say, my opinion, is that yes and no. I think the good, robust psychological work does. I think the um, slightly dodgy stuff doesn't, because my belief is that the Bible is full of truth. And good science will always stumble upon the truth. So let's look at the Bible specifically in light of mental illness. Now, if you were to go to the Bible and search up the words mental illness, you will find donuts. You will find zip, nada, nothing. It's not in there. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is silent on it. There is a lot in the Bible which talks around principles that relate to our mental health. So to give you some examples, I've got some verses which I think will pop up on the screen. Did did I get a presentation from me? No? Okay. Don't worry about it. They'll pop up in your Bibles so you can look them up. So um, in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us not to worry. He tells us to focus on God and his provision for today rather than for tomorrow and in doing so, not to be anxious. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul instructs the church to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. This is talking about being, holding our thoughts accountable, not just letting any thought that comes into our head remain there unchecked, unevaluated. And in Proverbs 29:11, 11, uh, the writer there talks about what to do with their anger and that letting it have full vent is actually destructive for us. And we should find wise ways to deal with our anger. These are just examples. The Bible is full of material like this, which relates to our mental health. And each of these could be a message on their own and show how the Bible has a lot to say about mental health. Um, but I want to share one main thought on what I, what really um, sticks out to me about what the Bible says about mental illness. And if there could be anything that you remember tonight, it would be this. And that is that God cares a lot about broken people in difficult circumstances. And if I consider where mental illness occurs, it's in broken people in difficult circumstances. And just in case you're feeling singled out, I'll let you in on a secret. It's everybody in the room, including me. Hard to believe, I know, that I could have some brokenness, but it's true, and my wife's here to bear account of that. When our brokenness combines with hardship or difficult circumstances, we can find ourselves in mental distress. Now, I'll just be a bit broader on this topic first. Uh, Broken people in difficult circumstances includes mental health but is not contained by it. There is more to us than our mental health. It is a modern conceptualization or understanding of part of our personhood. And the Bible provides broader answers than just the field of psychology or psychiatry because it deals with the broader scope of our brokenness. But still, mental illness is a significant part and you can find it in the Bible. I'm going to give you some examples. Now, in um, psychology, We have a uh, book, which I think we'll have a picture of here. It's called the DSM-5, which stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, fifth edition. So DSM-5 will do just fine. And in it, there are 265 confirmed diagnoses and a whole bunch of other provisional ones uh, that haven't quite met the grade yet. And depending how much research is done around them, um, they may meet the grade for the sixth edition. Because this thing gets revised all the time. Now you will find in here a whole range of different things. You'll find developmental disorders such as autism or intellectual disability. You'll find mood disorders such as depression and anxiety, OCD. Um, You'll also find behavioural disorders such as ADHD, ODD, conduct disorder. You'll find personality disorders such as narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder. You'll find sleep disorders. You'll find sexual disorders. You'll find uh, disorders of addiction and substance misuse and abuse, including caffeine. You'll find addictions, including internet gaming addiction. 265. 265 ways that we can suffer in an area of mental health. Now, this next book is not the DSM. This book is the Bible, and the Bible is many things. Uh, We believe that it's the inspired word of God, and we believe that among other things it was given in order to give us guidance and encouragement and joy and peace as we navigate this life because our God is a good God, and he likes to give us things to help us through, including his story of history. Now, and history ongoing, by the way. Now you'll notice that the Bible and the DSM are not the same thing. Aside from different covers, the DSM's got that lovely clinical purple look to it. The Bible often comes in a nice smelling leather. Besides better marketing, there's other differences between the Bible and the DSM. The main reason is that the Bible, just to be clear, is beyond the DSM just as it is beyond textbooks on anything. The Bible tells God's story from his perspective, past, present, and future. Now, every other book just tells a part of what we're picking up from his story from someone else's perspective. So the Bible goes beyond the DSM. Other differences between the Bible and the DSM is that the first edition of the DSM was in 1952. The first edition of the Bible predates that significantly. So as a result, you won't find the labels of OCD or schizophrenia in the Bible. It's too old for that, right? However, when you spend time reading the stories of the people within it, you discover a lot of broken people in difficult circumstances whose distress would probably qualify them for a DSM diagnosis if they were around today. So, for example, in the book of Daniel in chapter 4, we hear about King Nebuchadnezzar, the supreme ruler of the ancient world of Babylon, has this period of madness where he becomes like a wild animal and lives in the fields and grows his beard so that it's like feathers and his fingernails and toenails like claws, and he's just, no one can get to him. Now, if that happened now, you'd say there's some sort of psychosis going on for King Nebuchadnezzar. If he presented in my office, he'd be diagnosed with something that said he was mentally unwell. In Samuel, we read of Hannah's inconsolable grief over being childless. We would maybe diagnose it with depression and bereavement. And the Psalms are full of David describing long periods of low mood. He might be diagnosed with episodic depression or bipolar disorder or some form of dysthymia. And King Saul is both homicidal and suicidal. The list goes on. So, You can look through the Bible. There's tons of these examples. They're examples of broken people in difficult circumstances primarily. The Bible, you see, has everything to say about broken people in difficult circumstances. It has everything to say about it, including and beyond our mental health as we understand it now. In fact, the Bible is the story of God rescuing broken people from difficult circumstances. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross and his soon coming return are the ultimate act of God redeeming his broken people and then rescuing them from difficult circumstances. God in his word is very concerned with broken people in difficult circumstances. And if I could leave you with anything about what the Bible has to say about mental illness, it would be that. What I'd like to do now in the time that I'm going to share left is I'd like to cover two things applying that principle. Looking at uh, the Bible through that lens, what does it say to us about our own mental health and distress? If we're suffering, what can we gain from the Bible's perspective on this? And what can we gain if someone we know is suffering with mental illness? So firstly, what would the Bible say to us in relation to our own mental health? through this perspective of broken people in difficult circumstances. Well, to start off with, I want to look at our emotions. Because when we're talking about um, mental illness, often we're talking about strong, distressing emotions. The most commonly diagnosed mental health conditions are the mood disorders, so depression and different types of anxiety. So let's get a definition on emotions so that we all know what we're talking about, right? So I've got a definition here which is helpful. Emotions are understood to be feelings, largely physiological in manifestation, that occur in response to an experience, a thought or thought process, a relationship or as the result of a more pervasive mood state. I'll just draw your attention to the last part of that definition. They occur in response to an experience, thought process or relationship. In other words, emotions are telling you something. They tell you something. You can think of them a bit like this. Here's a diagram of an iceberg. Now, um, we don't have icebergs here in Newcastle, but in other parts of the world they, I do believe they exist. Um, there's parts where the water is so cold that big chunks of ice float around and there's little mythical creatures called penguins that are on them. And Anyway, the, icebergs are big things. Um, they can reach over 150 metres in height above the sea level which is big. It's bigger than that Queen's Wharf Tower thing that used to be there that got thankfully torn down. They're tall. But most of the mass of an iceberg actually is under the surface. Up to 90% of its mass is under the surface. See, what you see above the surface is only an indication of what is primarily under the surface. And this is often what it's like with our emotions and our distress. Our emotions are telling us something. There's more underneath. And in my opinion, one of the best things you can do when you feel emotional distress is to try and explore what is underneath what you are feeling. These feelings happen for reasons. You see, emotions are actually part of God's design. And this might be surprising for you, but it shouldn't be when we consider the creator and whose image we've been created in. We're actually a chip off the old block. And if you read any of the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament prophets, you will see that God is an emotional guy. He's not unhinged, he's not out of control, but he is an emotional God. But when we read about his emotions, we can see every time that he is emotional for a reason. If you, for instance, are binging on Netflix, focusing on what you don't have. This isn't a tick list. You don't have all of these. Just just some examples. Sleeping and eating poorly, have recently lost a job, have recently lost a loved one, are having difficulty connecting with others, are lonely, are low on friends, believe that you're ugly and unlovable, deeply dissatisfied with how you look, If these areas of brokenness and difficult circumstances are present in your life, then expect your feelings to let you know about it. You will experience mental distress. Your emotions are telling you something. In psychology, we have a practice when we're treating someone that we endeavor to abide by called case formulation. And case formulation involves taking the time to carefully consider and discover what all of the different factors might be that have led to someone experiencing their mental illness. It is not enough to just give someone a questionnaire and then decide that they qualify for depression. We need to understand why they have that depression, what triggered it, what contributed to it, what maintains it. Sometimes this is complex, sometimes it's a mystery, but we have to have a look under the surface. This is a godly process to do. Because every person who experiences mental illness does so because of their own specific brokenness and difficult circumstances. And this for me is one of the reasons why broad brush statements around mental health can actually be really unhelpful. We need to take each person as a unique child of God with their own brokenness and their own challenging situations and endeavour to understand that in order to understand their distress. So if you ever find yourself in a place where you are struggling, experiencing symptoms of mental illness, something that I feel really strongly is really helpful and really biblical to do is to try and have a look under the surface as to what could possibly be contributing and that's not to say it's ever just a simple just do this and you'll be fine it's often complicated because we're complicated but I believe that's where we need to go which leads me to the next thing which is how can we help others who may be struggling with mental illness how do we respond now obviously I'm not covering everything I didn't say I would but I'm just giving you a few principles to consider and to think about in light of your context and your situation. So let's look at what to do if somebody is experiencing mental distress near you. Now, I want to take the broad message of the Bible here that is concerned with dealing with broken people in difficult circumstances and specifically dealing with our ultimate brokenness through the gospel of Jesus. I want to take that truth. And if I consider that truth, then our response to those who may be experiencing mental illness should be the same as God's response to us. And his response to us is one of love. And I don't mean that in a cliched sense. I'm going to unpack a little what that looks like. God's very clear in his word and his interactions with us what his love looks like. His love is not punitive. And his love is also not just tolerant of our distress, so to do this, I want to look at a story, a specific story in the Bible. So if you've got your Bible, you can open it up. But if not, he and the Magician Barson has managed to get my PowerPoint slides up on the screen. And you can read along there. So in, we're going to look at the story in 1 Kings 19. And just to give you some context to this story, this story is about Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And Elijah's ministry, like a lot of the prophets back in the old kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah, was to bring a very unpopular message to the leaders of Israel and to the people of Israel, and that was that they were not following God and things were not going to go well for them if they kept going down that path. Now, Elijah copped a lot of heat for this, particularly from the queen, Queen Jezebel, who was a nasty piece of work, and she often put death threats out on Elijah. Now, in one king's chapter 18, there's this incredible story where Elijah um, or God through Elijah has this incredible victory on Mount Carmel, where there's this showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and God shows up in a huge way with a big flaming fireball and really vindicates Elijah's message. But after this amazing victory, Jezebel sends out another death threat to Elijah and it hits him pretty hard. So Elijah runs off to the desert to die. He presents with classic symptoms of what we would call a major depressive episode with suicidal ideation. Now we're going to read from verse 3 in chapter 19. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Little side note here, when he's talking about ancestors, he's talking about bones in a cave. He's saying I'd be better off dead. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, And put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king of Aram, also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. I want to look at this passage and pull apart a couple of things just quickly to finish to see how God responded to Elijah's mental state, how God's love looks responding to someone who is going through what's probably some form of mental illness here. Firstly, God was present. He was present. Often the very best thing that you can do when someone is distressed is just be present. In the book of Job, the best thing that his friends did was sit with him for a week and not say anything because, in Job 2, verse 13, they saw how great his suffering was. Suffering is hard, but suffering alone is even harder. First thing, be present. It's the first thing God does is he's there. The next thing that God does is he meets Elijah's basic needs. He gives him two meals and a couple of good sleeps. See, our basic needs are tied to our mental health. I just know personally if I'm hungry or tired or thirsty that I'm not much fun to be around. Meeting basic needs is key. And when we're treating mood disorders, it's one of the first things we do. We look at people's basic needs. Are they eating well, sleeping well? Do they exercise? Meeting basic needs is key. Don't underestimate helping someone with a meal when they are going through mental illness or offering to babysit their kids so they can get some sleep. We can't deny our humanity. The second thing is meet some basic needs. The last element in this story that I believe is helpful for us as we look for an approach of love to dealing with mental illness and those around us is to... Allow space and allow time for God to speak, for God to speak. Now, that's not saying he won't speak through you. He might. He could. He does. It's amazing. But we can often be quick to speak into difficult situations just because we want that situation to go away. We want to fix it, right? And I'm not saying that there isn't time for that and there isn't space for that. But you've got to allow space For God to speak, we have to allow God to draw the other person's attention to what is underneath the surface of their iceberg. In Elijah's case, it was probably that he was suffering from burnout and that he had a fair bout of hopeless thinking. He thought that when it came to God's work, he was it. And after years of slaving away, uh, the queen was now going to kill him, and so everything in his life had amounted. To nothing, And what's more, what he was passionate about, God's message, was going to be extinguished. But God revealed to Elijah that that just simply wasn't true. That God was responsible for his own work. And God's work will always be accomplished. And in this instance, there was a stack of others, 7,000 of them, who Elijah didn't know of, who were also serving God and speaking out God's message. And after hearing this, things changed for Elijah. We have to allow space for God to speak. No one knows what's under the surface of our icebergs more than our heavenly Father who sees everything and who has been through everything with us. This story for me speaks of an approach of love to mental illness. It's neither tolerant of Elijah's distress and that it isn't satisfied just to let it remain just to be like, well, Elijah, you're just depressed and that's just who you are and who you ever shall be, strives with Elijah to see it relieved. But God's approach is also not punitive in that he doesn't make light of it and he doesn't take a harsh approach to Elijah. I am sure after God sent down a fireball from heaven to burn up the entire altar of Baal and have that huge victory on Carmel, that he was probably somewhat frustrated that Elijah then ran off into the desert. I'm sure he was frustrated, but his heart went out to him and he wasn't punitive towards him. He took an approach of love to get him through it. We are broken people in difficult circumstances and we need to follow our God's example in how to deal with that. And that's to take an approach of love, not a punitive approach, not just a tolerant approach, but an approach of love. I could go on and talk about many other things in the Bible and in our knowledge of God that speak into this area of mental illness, but I want to leave you just with those thoughts. And hopefully they get you thinking, and hopefully beyond that they bring you a bit of hope. I believe now we're going to have a time of discussion. I'm going to throw over to Theo to orchestrate that for you. But before we do that, I just want to pray just real quickly. God, I've said a lot of things tonight, Lord, And what I would ask is that you would let settle in every single person's heart here tonight, that which they most need to hear. And if it's something altogether entirely different from what I've said tonight, if it's a word you want to speak to them right now, Lord, I ask that you would do that. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you for your understanding of your complicated, beautiful, broken creatures that you are redeeming. Amen. Let's thank Asha for that (laughs) great
0: word. Um, So we're going to have a time of discussion, but just quickly um, I'm going to invite Rochelle to just just draw your attention to a piece of paper which should be on your table there that's just got some info on it.
2: Yeah, hi. So on your table I've placed a piece of paper in the middle, which I hope you all can find sitting there. And... On that piece of paper is a bunch of different uh, services that are local to Newcastle or helplines that can be used either for yourself or as referrals to people that might be feeling challenged with mental health challenges. Um, Another note on there is about GP access. So I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but if you are suffering from mental health, you can go and speak with your GP. Uh, they can then um, give you a mental health care plan uh, which will give you six to eight uh, subsidised counselling sessions with a psychologist and then they can refer you to local psychologists you can connect in with. So it means that ends up being a lot cheaper for you because that is a concern for some people that actually accessing the help and support is going to be financially costly. I will also encourage you to maybe take one of the numbers and save it in your phone so you have something to refer to if anyone does ever come up to you and state to you that they're feeling really challenged um and that you have somewhere that you know that you can refer them on to and help support them all right thank you
0: thanks roch um and if there's anyone who has a uh, a no, no, I'm not going to say that. No. I was going to say, I was going to say, if you had a burning question, then you don't, you know, you don't sort of do the um, smartphone thing, then you could put your hand up. But I've decided, not. I'm going to um, discriminate. <laughs> right. Let's have a look. There's generally one at my expense. So, Question one is how can a parent help a teenager who is depressed... ...but won't talk about it, won't accept love and keeps pushing them away.
1: Yeah, goodness. Um, That's a really tough question. Tough situation to be in. It's difficult to probably say anything too helpful... ...without fully knowing what's going on in your situation. As a generalisation though... I'd probably come back to some of the stuff that um spoke about before. There's still plenty you can do even when they don't want to talk to you. And there's certainly a lot you can do to keep the invitation out there and to keep the offer there and to show that you are ready if and whenever they are. And the other thing I'd maybe put out there as well is it can be good to... ...in situations like that, particularly with teenagers... ...have other people in their world who you think they might talk to... ...and seeing if you can have any any luck that way as well. People that already have existing relationships that can maybe... um, ...get them to talk a little bit. Um, But probably difficult for me to give too much specific on on your situation... ...without knowing what's going on um, altogether except... um, that I just really want to encourage you to um, keep putting the invitation out there and I would just pray for strength and perseverance for you. Hmm. Okay.
0: Um, in some cases, does mental illness not get healed but rather managed?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean I think it, there there are some situations like with physical illness too where, um, you know, that tends to be the case as well. And the reasons for that are complex, all different reasons. It can be because um, uh, of a whole bunch of uh, medical complications, substance complications, things in life, um, a repeated trauma that can just mean that, um, yeah, maybe sometimes there's things that we just, yeah, we manage. We don't sort of get through altogether. I still think and I still know that God's desire is for us to be completely whole, completely whole. And uh, we should continue leaning into that and walking towards that. But don't be discouraged if you're not there yet. And if you are 85 and you're not there yet. um, I imagine when I am 85 I will still not be there yet with everything. But one of the wonderful things that we have is that um, we do know that once this life is over and our bodies are renewed that... um, God is going to fully redeem us and we'll be there then. Can we please dim the lights and turn on the pretty bulbs?
0: Sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a psychologist, not a psychic. I can't do telekinesis or anything like that. want to
0: lose, the, um, lose the, ho- the hospital grade. Our <laughs> uh, flu Ready for it? Very good. Round of applause for Ian and everybody. So how do you investigate what's under the surface? Are there questions we should ask ourselves or ways to discover the truth of the situation?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think it's good to look at a few different areas. It's good to look at just first of all just your general life, what's going on in your life in terms of some of those basic things. Um, So basic, basic um, sleep, diet, exercise, seeing people, doing meaningful activities, All that sort of stuff. Do an inventory of that stuff first. Do an inventory of relationships and do an inventory of the quality of those relationships. Do an inventory of your circumstances. And something else I think is worthwhile doing an inventory on, it's good to do this in prayer and sometimes with wise counsel with someone else, is to do an inventory of what's going on internally for you in terms of your thoughts and what you're thinking, the habits of thoughts you have, the beliefs that you're holding on to um, and any sort of unresolved stuff that might be in there. But if you're just not sure and if it's a bit boggy, like everything, go and find someone you trust to talk to and pray and let God sort of speak. If you can talk to someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit, that's wonderful because he knows and he can guide discussions and questions and just reveal things. Um, And don't be afraid to go and see someone professionally who can look at it with an objective different lens and find out for you. But... That initial list is a good place to start. There's often all sorts of things we can discover that, um, that can be contributing to how we're feeling.
0: Hmm. Where does nature and the chemicals in our brain fit into mental illness? Um, is it true that some people
1: are more genetically inclined to develop mental illnesses? Yeah, there's genetic, there's genetic um, risk factors with um, different mental disorders um, and that's pretty well established. Um, and, you know, there's, I guess what I like to think of is this way, is that you're born with a whole bunch of genetic predispositions and it's sort of um, in the right or wrong set of circumstances you could be more likely to develop particular problems. In terms of just thinking around, so the first part of that question, there was around nature, wasn't it? Can you just? Yeah. So where does nature um, slash the chemicals in our brain fit into me? Yeah, yeah. I think what's helpful with that is to keep in mind that we are complex and to try and do away a little bit with the ancient Greek thinking which permeates our Western culture, which is that we have these little petitioned parts of ourselves which don't talk to each other. A bit like government agencies in the one office block. But, but that's not actually how, how we're made. Everything is spiritual. Everything is part of our personhood and there's just great overlap. And I think when we start to tease things out one or the other, oh, it's just this and it's all just that, we're diminishing the complexity and the wholeness of how we were made. And so, um, yeah, I'd just probably preface it with that. Are mental health and spiritual health intertwined off the
0: back of that, I suppose. Um, should we try and unwind them to treat both or do we treat
1: both in the same way? Oh, yes. I mean, I sound like a broken record, but... Um but some of this stuff is we've got to appreciate the complexity of every single person and sometimes you will do things simultaneously and some, sometimes you'll do things separately. If your mood is really um, severe, then sometimes you will just treat it medically first before you unpack anything else. Uh, sometimes you might have capacity to do multiple things simultaneously. And again, I come back to a statement I said earlier in that I, I think that it's very... Very important that we keep that godly perspective. If every single person has their own unique set of brokenness and difficult circumstances, and to keep that in the utmost of our mind when we are working with someone or supporting someone, because otherwise we can get drawn into generalizations and blanket approaches to things, which can do a lot of damage. Um, If we just say, Oh, look, you know, you just need to address those things together, or you need to make sure a medication first, or you need to this or that or the other. Um, I am grateful that my God is consistent in his principles and consistent in his love, but he knows me and treats me individually. And I think we would do well to do the same for each other.
0: How can you tell the difference between mental health issues and spiritual issues? Well, I think
1: this relates a little bit to what I mentioned before and that I don't think we petition ourselves out too much. There, we have this overlap in our personhood, this inter, interaction in our personhood, and um, often it's simultaneous, in my opinion. I know that everyone here has different experiences when it comes to spiritual stuff, and particularly when we talk about demonic stuff that can be really divisive in a Christian setting. We'll have different experience and different ideas. But I think there, there is overlap and I don't think we should neglect one over the other. But I don't think we should be afraid of any of our brokenness. I think we should keep our eyes fixated on the one who does the healing of our brokenness and not be frightened about whether it's medical, spiritual, uh, a result of our history or whatever it might be. Our God is bigger and stronger and wiser and kinder and if we keep our eyes on Him, He'll navigate us through whatever it is and whatever aspect of that we need to address. Um.
0: One of the questions here is, I don't understand it, but maybe you will. Do mental illnesses develop from the same area of the brain?
1: Uh, Well, no. Um, In terms of the, like, chemistry of our brain, for different um, disorders it's different things, different chemicals, different neurotransmitters. Brains are like fingerprints. They're incredibly complex. If you ever get, and and individualised, if you ever get... um, Medi- psychotropic medication for mood um, or even if you um, have maybe some stimulant medication for your kid maybe Ritalin or something like that you'll see on the box because these are medications that act on the brain possible side effects there's a list as long as your arm right and that's not to freak you out that's just to cover the, the, uh, the um, makers of the medication because they don't know your brain individually and this is another great way of God showing that each, every one of you, different and special and unique. So, absolutely, there's there's generalisations about different things, different um, chemicals and parts of the brain that are linked to different, particularly mood disorders and psychosis. But um, in terms of the unique structure and chemical stuff that's in there, it is a little bit unique with every brain. Uh, do you know of any Christian psychiatrists in the Newcastle area? Yes. I'd be happy to, if anyone wants to know, I'd be happy to give you some names. I would just need to look them up in my little area of my brain where I keep all those names and let you know. But, yeah, there are. There's Christian psychiatrists, Christian psychologists. You know what the key is if you want to know where these, who these people are? Find a Christian GP. Um, they're often a great gateway to a lot of those different specialists. Um, there's also, too, another website called the Christian Health, uh, Newcastle Christian Health Uh, professionals um ncp nch oh gosh spelling is not my strength but if you type that in there's um there's a directory that's being developed by christian health professionals around newcastle where you can look people up we might even Mm
0: um i was just thinking it might be good if 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 there was something that you could send to me and we could post on the GYA Facebook page, or something like that, or if someone wanted to send an email to the church, then we could find out with some more specific information. Um, it's probably just about um, wrap up time, but I might see if I can ask one more question. Just trying to find one that I haven't already asked. How do we balance the diagnosis of mental illness with owning? The
1: label of mental illness to overcome it,
0: rather than letting it define us. Mm.
1: Great question. So I work a lot with young people, and it really saddens me when um, a young person uh, feels that they are defined by their diagnosis. Um, I'll give you a little little example of this, just to give you um, some context, is that. So, one of the things that uh, we might investigate and diagnose at our practice are learning difficulties for children. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff around learning difficulties and the trajectory for your education and the likelihood of tertiary education and certain careers. But that is all statistics. And I have been surprised by a number of kids who I've diagnosed with dyslexia or some other learning disorder who've gone on to do incredibly academic things. And I share that with you as an example of that. Um, a diagnosis is meant to guide treatment. It's not meant to define who you are. It's never meant to define who you are. I believe as a Christian that we are primarily defined by um, the family that we belong to, and that is we are God's children. And everything else is distant, second to that. So when it comes to mental health stuff, I think diagnosis is to get treatment. Help you get better. Diagnosis is given to guide what we should do with that person to help them get better. So if somebody comes to me and they have uh, some sort of social anxiety then and I diagnose it as social anxiety, what that means is that I've got a bit of an idea about what the treatment should be now for that person. It does not mean that that person is going to be lonely and friendless and should um, give up on that because of that diagnosis. The other thing I'd say too is that a lot of mood disorders are transient. They don't. They can have chronic forms, absolutely, that is there, but they come and go and I believe it's helpful not to live under the banner of that and to speak that over ourselves all the time. It's okay to be real about our circumstances, but don't claim it as your identity. It's not who you are and it doesn't have to define your future. Fantastic. And so we've got a question from someone...
0: Called Sue. Uh, she asks, will all the jokes at Theo's expense because often when we do these people make jokes at my expense. Will all the jokes at Theo's expense have a negative effect on his mental health? Or should we pile them on
1: harder? <laughs> Look, it just depends how robust your self-esteem and ego is, Theo, as to <laughs> it diminishes with every grapple. <laughs> <laughs> um, can
0: we thank Asha? Thank you Ash. Um, you know, a fantastic talk and incredibly um, insightful responses there. So in a sense we're coming to the end of the official part of the night but um, by no means do I want people to race off without feeling like there was an opportunity for prayer and Probably the best way to do that is just around our tables. So I want to just encourage you before you go, maybe just with your table, just um, say, you know, you might turn to the person next to you even and just say, can I pray for you? Or perhaps as a whole table, you know, if if, if you're comfortable with this, you might like to actually pray for our church community and that we would be a community that continues to grow in mental health and continues to... Um, a place that people can turn to in their distress, you know, in the little bit of the discussion that I heard, it's just bringing out the fact that like, sometimes when you're in, you know, you're not doing well mentally church can be an incredibly difficult place to step into, Um, and that's not what we want, it should be a place where you um, feel welcome, uh, no matter how you're doing or what's going on Um, so that's something that, that would be great if people would be praying into as well, but just you know, just like we would with normal church, don't let the moment pass without just seeing if someone needs prayer, and uh, and we actually have this church. You know, aside from the um, the things the things that you heard on, uh, heard from Asha, the things that you've got on your table there, we at, at our church have um, prayer counselors who you can meet with during the week. And so, if you would like to find out about that, then just come and talk to me or get in contact with the church during the week because there's a couple of devoted, uh, fantastic prayer, highly experienced prayer counsellors who um, would love to meet with you. If you feel that listening to this, you actually go, actually, I need to, uh, I need to talk to somebody. Um, Just whilst I was up here, Rochelle just sent me a text with regards to that question that we got about a parent who is just struggling to connect with their teenager. And she's just mentioning that there's a helpful free service which is called The Canopy. The Canopy, so you can search that. It's a free family support service that can offer programs or advice for parents that may have concerns or desire to learn how to connect with their children more. So if that's relevant to you or if that's relevant to someone you know, remember The Canopy because that's something that you can pass on so uh thank you all for coming tonight um it's uh it's great to be doing grapple again and uh next year we will be um going into hopefully a year of of more grapple and less coronavirus and um and so you might also want to have a little chat with your table around what topics you would like us to grapple with because in slido you can write those suggestions into the poll there we did this one because it was the most popular response from our last poll so the polls work just like america and um so have a discussion around your table and um about that as well what what might be a good topic for the next grapple and put it into the poll before you leave so pray poll and um and we'll see you at the next grapple in the new year